Listener, beware. You gave us the scares. Hello. And welcome. To Say Podcast and Die. The mini-sode. That's right. Theories and queer ease. It's funny. It's not just us not knowing how to spell. (laughs) That's right. We're going to talk about some of the things you told us about some of the past books we've read, starting with Why I'm Afraid of Bees. Longtime goose punk Mr. Editor shared with us that Stein says in his autobiography that Why I'm Afraid of Bees was actually based on another book uh, by a guy called Robert Sheckley. The book's called Mind Swap, and it was about a company that gave you a vacation from your own body. They switched your mind into the body of an alien on another planet, and they switched the alien into your body. It was a good way to visit another planet. Is it a good way to visit another planet? Better than doing it in your own body, probably. Probably safer than traveling through space and faster. Yeah. I assume. So it checks. Yeah, okay. Checks out. It also makes a lot of sense in that we have listened to R.L. Stein talk about his process. And one thing he does is say, borrow slash steal plots from other things you like. So that also tracks with his style. I wonder why he switched it to bees instead of aliens. So one thing he also said is that he would come up with the titles first. So probably he had locked himself into a book that had something to do with bees and said, okay, this. Yeah, yeah, because the story is kind of similar to The Fly, and I guess it's kind of a mashup of the two. Yeah. But, yeah, with bees, because bees are generally scarier than flies, I would say. Yeah. But apparently he read the book when he was 10 or 12, so that's cute. (laughs) Really made an impression. Speaking of things you read when you were younger, Goosepunk, Fab's Megan B. told us, Deep Trouble is the first chapter book I ever read cover to cover in one sitting. I love the ocean. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. I love the ocean, the creepy bits about it in particular, so I was so excited to get this in my Scholastic Book Order. Ah, Scholastic Book Order, man. Yeah, it was always so exciting. Mm -hmm. It's like, before there were Amazon deliveries, you had your Scholastic Book Order, and also you were causing less harm through that method. (laughs) Plus you got a cool catalog to flip through. Uh Uh-huh. Megan goes on. I remember that all of the twists and turns and the tiny hints of a preteen romance were what kept me reading. The whole thing just felt super grown up to me at about nine years old, and I had to know how it ended or else I would never have been able to sleep. That's how he gets ya. I also remember being kind of mad about the ending when it finally came. That trademark cliffhanger twist remains my least favorite part of the series, so much that for a while I would just stop halfway through the last chapter to avoid being angry about it. Yet reading this made me think of you, Alyssa, and your hatred of the twists. It's not that I hate the twists. I hate lack of explanation. And I hate fake outs more, I think. Mm-hmm. Like, I like the sort of last little zinger that tells us, oh, no, it's not a happy ending. Do you think that is a fake out, though? I think it's different than the fake out. Because the fake out is something like, ah, oh, and then I was eaten by a giant bug. Nah, it was a dream. Whereas this is, everything was happy. Or was it? Yeah, I feel like there's two ways of taking it. I think on the one hand, those twist endings are a bit of a fake out in that you're not really supposed to take that to be the ending, more Mm -hmm. just a joke, like his final dad joke of the book. But on the other hand, one thing I like about it, similar to you, is that it doesn't let the universe be neatly resolved, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas with the chapter cliffhangers, they are resolved in the next chapter usually. Yeah, like immediately. Yeah, I guess I'm okay with it when it's not wrapped up. Hmm. Speaking of not wrapped up, mm. we got a lot of our followers very excited to share and get creative with what they would do with Monster Blood. Mm. I'm just going to run right through these. I have no idea how to pronounce J-T-A-E-U-9, but said follower just posted a gif of Clifford the Big Red Dog, <laughs> which I thought, yeah. Unfortunately, he would just get bigger and bigger. <laughs> I don't know if there's a size limit where you eventually stop growing. 
We don't know either. Only expiration date. So I guess he'd keep growing until... Until the ex- monster blood expired. Malk, funny name, said, feed it to a rabbit and make the biggest chungus of all. <laughs> you had a chungus rabbit at one he point. He sure did. Yeah, he loved eating. Yeah, wouldn't he just lick the oven all the time? Yeah, I'd, I'd um, let them out in the morning and they would run around the kitchen and one of them, he'd just be like running and jumping and the other one would just go over to the oven and start licking it. Like, like spilled food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'd like lick different parts of the kitchen. Run Gun had a good idea, I thought, which was a pre-workout boost, you know, get swole. <laughs> I think one of my favorite answers was from Fear the Talking Queers, which they just wrote, lube. Ah, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> nice. Melissa suggested face mask. Instead of shrinking your pores, it'll do the opposite. Oh, like that kind of face mask. Yeah. That makes more sense. <laughs> yes. You just thought rubbing it on your face I was, as a like, disguise. I was thinking of it, no, like... <laughs> like you know, like you're patting your chin like, like a fake goatee. No, I was thinking like a COVID mask. Oh. I thought, oh, yeah, gotcha. probably... Not too much would get out of it because stuff gets stuck I in see. it. But yeah, I bet I bet Melissa meant exfoliating mask type. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Austin says scare my bratty cousin, which nice. is a nice shout out to Monster Blood Three coming soon. Goosepunk Art uh, says topping for my ice cream sundae, which tells me maybe Art hasn't read Goosebumps <laughs> <laughs> or just wants a really big sundae. Yeah. Ooh, there good go. thinking. See, you order a small scoop, put Monster Blood on it. And then you've got like a gallon of ice cream. It's a, it's, it's a save money tip. <laughs> oh my God. And then XS Podcast uh, said that they'd use it as hair regrowth formula, which is something that many of the characters we've encountered in Goosebumps so far seem to be very much in need of. So hopefully that'll come full circle at some point. Well, so it's like the opposite of my hairiest adventure, where they're just shaving off the hair, shaving off the hair. Maybe something to do with monster blood was in that Instatan. Maybe. Which would make his hair growth unrelated to him being a dog. Just a coincidence. <laughs> He's also turning into a dog. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of Monster Blood 2, we asked you, how would you interpret Evan's dad's sculptures? And as a refresher, he did one that was a wheel that Evan destroyed by giving it to Cuddles, the hamster, and another one that was supposed to be the impression of autumn leaves, but not look like leaves. Blood Bank Blues wrote, I would say that Stein treats aesthetic texts along the high art, low art binary. Works of, in quotes, art are presented as foreign, puzzling objects, whereas things like comics or writing done by the adolescent characters are frequently engaged with joyfully and on a meaningful level. Very good point. Yeah, I love this point. They continue, This isn't necessarily because Stein himself is invested in the binary, although in interviews he is more comfortable with seeing his own work as less than literary. That's true. He's like, this is entertainment. There's no lesson. It's part of his commitment to realism in the perspective of his protagonists. For 12-year-olds, art mostly is a collection of foreign puzzling objects, if for no other reason than because that's how society presents them to them. Also very true. So I think the work here is meant to be a prop, standing in for art as, quote, kind of useless, confusing object adults like, unquote. Zach's blob from The Blob That Ate Everything is one of those examples of adolescent writing coded as low art. I really love this point, and it's something that I feel really strongly. I was always interested, especially when I first started doing graduate study in English, that I was familiar with fandom worlds where people are just passionate about what they're reading, can't get enough of it, will stay up all night working out the finer details of it, and then the way that in the literary criticism context, quite a lot of people, though not all, will completely not consider things like Goosebumps or Twilight, Buffy, the Vampire Slayer, whatever. Right, things that are popular. 
and to, to by, not be art. And, and by dint of the fact that they're popular. Yeah, even though clearly people are able to get complexity out of them, the biggest difference seems to be the number of people who like them. Even among people who say, oh, I don't believe in the higher, lower dichotomy, often they do. Well, and I guess there's a bit of a difference. So someone like Dostoevsky, right, is approaching writing very differently from R.L. Stein. And he's trying... Except he was also writing for money. That's he's like, true. I have gambling debts. So do you think he's full of it when he's saying, you know, art has to be when you've fully conveyed character and you have to pick exactly the right words to do it? No, I think that both can exist in, a, in the same person. I'd love to write things that are great and fully articulated expressions of whatever... I wanted, but I'd also like to be paid to do it. And none of this like paid and exposure bullshit. <laughs> so I, th I think it can be both. Same with Dickens, right? He was a very popular novelist and people now consider him like, oh, he's amazing and whatever. Like but Shakespeare he, too, yeah. Yeah. We, I think, lose the economic dimension of it when it starts to become canonized in that way. I think that's a really good point. The, the distinction I was trying to make more is between someone like R.L. Stein who says, I just put down whatever words the kids are going to understand. It doesn't mm -hmm. really matter. It all doesn't have to add up versus someone who's really trying to make things add up. Mm -hmm. I think you could make a distinction there between higher art and lower art, but a lot of times people are actually talking about the quality of what you can say about it or do with it rather than the quality of the thing itself. And then that's where they get really arbitrary because I think people can do equally interesting things with whatever object they look at. And that's separate from how good of, uh, like, however you want to define that good or thoughtful of an object it is. I mean, yes and no. I mean, this is a conversation we have a lot. I guess I'm thinking, yeah, partly because you've gotten me to be less polarized about there being no real distinction between good and better. Seeing you try to make things better, mm -hmm. I can see, yeah, there are ways of making things better. There's things that are more well thought out. And there are things that care about that and things that don't, right? right. So I guess it's not good or bad. It's, it's just not, different. I think also the high art, low art conversation is at the end of the day often about status and cultural cachet in a way that a lot of people invested in that binary don't want to admit, as opposed to an innate quality of the thing itself, which I think is also kind of what you're getting at. Although a disagreement we often have is that you say nothing is innately good or bad, which yeah. we, we disagree on. Yeah, I don't think anything's innately good or bad, but I think there are methods of approaching literature that are more trying to create a well-structured, effective object, and then sort of turning out something that's good enough and going to make people enjoy it, right? Mm -hmm. I guess they overlap, though. It's not really a binary. They do. And at a certain point, even James Joyce had to decide that Ulysses was good enough. I and think every... many of would disagree. <laughs> uh, yes. Well, and, uh, reviews certainly did. I think that for a lot of people, to put something out in the world, you have to decide that it's good enough as opposed to, ah, uh, yes, this is the perfect object of my dreams. So on some level, everyone is doing that. Yeah, I'm thinking back especially to the point Blood Bank Blues made about it's not really about the art necessarily being foreign, puzzling, or kind of standoffish, but it's about sometimes the way it's presented to someone as being that, right? Yeah, for sure, to right. kids. And then the sort of extension is those kids grow up to think, well, art is useless. And that's where we get, oh, well, you should go into a STEM field. You should learn data and programming and stuff because art is useless. Also, I'm going to spend all of my time in quarantine listening to podcasts, watching movies, listening to music, right? you know, looking at stuff on the internet, and those creators shouldn't make any money. So sorry I keep bringing you back to the money thing, but no, like, I mean, it's a, it makes sense. It's a value or rather an attitude that is 
is inculcated in us from young age, unless you're sort of taught, right? Like, oh, this is what a painting is. Like, why don't you try making a painting? Or this is why we look at paintings or listen to music or whatever. I think people are more often taught in an SAT subject test type of way, this art means this. Yes. And if you don't know that secret code, then you're wrong about art and you can't do it. And I think rightly so. A lot of people are skeptical. You know, I look at this and I don't see, I don't look at Kandinsky and I didn't get that it was an allegory for this or something. And that's, you know, not the only way into it. Yeah, of course. And, and I mean, you and I, I don't know how many students we've had and how many times we've had this conversation about like, oh, you're taught that I have to extract this piece of meaning and regurgitate it and say, you know, the great Gatsby is about wealth in America or whatever, whatever the fuck the meaning is given as. And you hear it come out of a student's mouth as like, did you think about that for two seconds? Like, I know it was given to you. Or conversely, you have a student who's you're trying to have an in-depth conversation conversation about a book or a story and they're like, but just give me the one sentence that I can say back to you in an essay. Yeah. What is the green light? (laughs) What does it represent? (laughs) Yeah. Which is something we like to have fun with, right? We know, for example, that there's not numerology coded into be careful what you wish for, but it is a fun way of drawing interpretive meaning out of it. Yeah. Goosebumps. I opened Night of the Living Dummy 2 to read it. And there was a post-it note in the book. I posted a picture of this on Instagram. So there's this post-it note that said, Slappy, hero's journey, question mark. And I was just staring at it. I was like, that's bizarre. And then I realized I was looking at my own handwriting. I was like, I wrote this note so they would remember to talk about this next time. Does Slappy follow the hero's journey? That is absolutely a thing we would tell a student not to write a paper about. And yet, like, I'm excited to talk about it with you when we record that episode. And honestly, I kind of would tell a student to do that because especially someone like Arl Stein who says, well, I don't really think about all the details of why something's here or not. I just lift plots from other writers sometimes. That's exactly an example of you don't need to think, did the author mean it? Mm -hmm. Because the author is filtering things that are out there in culture, tropes and conventions and structures that are embedded in our culture and he's putting them out there without necessarily thinking that's what he's doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's another reason we don't want to ask like, oh, well, did he mean this? Did he mean that? God damn it. We're going to have our shared universe. Even if he says none of the books are connected, even the ones that are sequels to one another. Yeah. That's why it's also when you have questions about like, oh, did the author intend to say this thing that was offensive? I don't mean specifically Arl Stein, but it's like, well, what matters is what's on the page and and what people are getting from it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something If there's a point to our podcast, aside from us wanting to do something during quarantine, I think (laughs) one point for me is I like to show how you can take popular literature seriously and also that the act of criticism isn't about getting it right. It's about having fun and generating meaning Mm -hmm. while also like appreciating and sharing appreciation for a meaningful text. Yeah. And connecting with people over that, too. Yeah, exactly, yeah. which is why we're doing this mini-sode. Hey! Connecting with people. Full circle. Speaking of reactions to popular art, we got some intense reactions to a picture that we shared. Mm-hmm. So there was a bunch of tops Goosebumps cards released in the 90s. We shared some images on Instagram because we have a few of them. First and foremost, the reaction that we got most intensely was from my mother, who has a phobia of worms. So, sorry, Mom. Yeah, this is with regard to goat worms. Uh, so the illustrator Zena Saunders did a picture of the main character from Go Eat Worms waking up in a bathtub full of worms, which was a very memorable scene from the book. Mm-hmm. And and she captured it. This card was ultimately not released, I think, because of the disturbing content. <laughs> Here's a few of the responses you all gave. Spooky Aureline, sorry if I said your name wrong, said, My feed refreshed and suddenly I was looking at this and the internet was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> it was, for so many reasons. And her friend X99 Fear Street said... Would love to die instead of having this in my memory. I cannot stop imagining the sensation of this and all the places a worm can go. R.I.P. to me. It was nice knowing you. 
<laughs> well, we broke some people. Yeah, well, Zena did. And oh, then, yeah, 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 Zena did. <laughs> our friend Goosepunk Ryan gave some fun information, which is that Zena Saunders is the daughter of Norm Saunders, who did some of the most grotesque of the Mars Attacks trading cards for Tops in the 60s, as well as most of the wacky packages, which were silly grotesque and the precursor to Garbage Pail Kids, speaking of Full Circle, which R.L. Stein just released a book about. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, that's amazing. And again, apologies. Check out the picture, though, if, if you dare, because it's really great, and I looked up some of Zena Saunders other illustration work. It's Zena, Z-I-N-A, and it's fantastic. The internet was a mistake. Yes, we can all agree, especially <laughs> in the last four years, that the internet was the wrong <laughs> wrong decision. Yeah. So I guess we'll just close with some shout-outs. Uh, first of all, I want to promote the Spanish-language Goosebumps podcast, Temblad Muchachos. They're at Temblad Temblad on Twitter. That's T-E-M-B-L-A-D-T-E-M-B-L-A-D. Yeah, they're doing a Goosebumps podcast, and they're really cool, they're funny, Go listen to them. I feel like this is good motivation to brush up on my Spanish. Same here. Yeah, <laughs> I am downloading some of their episodes to listen to while I run. We also want to shout out Tales from the Stitch for doing such cool work. She crochets all of these horror figures, dolls, and also has an excellent mastiff. You can adopt her crocheted creatures. She has... Ash from Evil Dead, Reagan from The Exorcist, Patty from Ghostbusters, and takes custom orders. Actually, you might not be able to adopt Reagan because I want to talk to you about something after this podcast. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it's really awesome, and you should check out her work and follow her and bring some spooky into your home. And finally, we want to return a shout out to someone who has shouted us out a few times, at Brother Ghoulish, who is on Twitter. And Brother Ghoulish is a fellow queer podcaster, and he runs a horror podcast called Brother Ghoulish's Tomb and covers horror short stories and does horror movie reviews and is just really cool. And he also has a fun Twitter account, so highly recommend. Thanks, Brother Ghoulish. Uh, I think that's it. That's it. Send us more stuff, Goosepunks. That's right. We love hearing from you. Yeah, you can get in touch on Instagram and Twitter at SayPodAndDie. And you can also email us, SayPodAndDie at gmail.com. Listeners beware. Send us more scares. Ooh. Ooh. Good boo. Good boo.